Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Representative Men, Seven Lectures by Ralph Waldo Emerson. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thanks to listeners for your lovely reviews this week. Hector for your review on CastBox, Benson R for your review on Podbean, iTunes listener Ginger5907, Kvan for your shout-out on Instagram. Massive thank you also to Rebecca Hammer for becoming a new Patreon and sponsoring the show. Thank you also to all the other patrons and anchor sponsors for continuing to support the show. The podcast is completely free, and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If the podcast helps, a fantastic way to say thank you is to tell a friend who might also need help with their sleep. Please also subscribe and leave a review. It really does help out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Representative Men, Seven Lectures, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Number one, uses of great men. It is natural to believe in great men. If the companions of our childhood should turn out to be heroes, and their condition regal, it would not surprise us. All mythology opens with demigods, and the circumstance is high and poetic. That is, their genius is paramount. In the legends of the Gautama, the first men ate the earth and found it deliciously sweet. Nature seems to exist for the excellent. The world is upheld by the veracity of good men. They make the earth wholesome. They who lived with them found life glad and nutritious. Life is sweet and tolerable only in our belief in such society, and actually or ideally, we manage to live with superiors. We call our children and our lands by their names, 
Their names are wrought into the verbs of language. Their works and effigies are in our houses. And every circumstance of the day recalls an anecdote of them. The search after the great is the dream of youth and the most serious occupation of manhood. We travel into foreign parts to find his works, if possible, to get a glimpse of him. We are but put off with fortune instead. You say, the English are practical, the Germans are hospitable. In Valencia, the climate is delicious, and in the hills of Sacramento, there is gold for the gathering. Yes, but I do not travel to find comfortable, rich and hospitable people, or clear sky or ingots that cost too much. But if there were any magnet that would point to the countries and houses, where are the persons who are intrinsically rich and powerful? I would sell all and buy it and put myself on the road today. The race goes with us on their credit. The knowledge that in the city is a man who invented the railroad raises the credit of all the citizens. Our religion is the love and cherishing of these patrons. The gods of fable are the shining moments of great men. We run all our vessels into one mould. Our colossal theologies of Judaism, Christism, Buddhism are the necessary and structural action of the human mind. The student of history is like a man going into a warehouse to buy cloths or carpets. He fancies he has a new article. If he go to the factory, he shall find that his new stuff still repeats the scrolls and rosettes which are found on the interior walls of the pyramids. Our theism is the purification of the human mind. Man can paint or make or think nothing but man. He believes that the great material elements had their origin from his thought. And our philosophy finds one essence collected or distributed. If now we proceed to inquire into the kinds of service we derive from others, let us be warned of the danger of modern studies and begin low enough. We must not contend against love or deny the substantial existence of other people. I know not what would happen to us. We have social strengths. Our affection toward others creates a sort of vantage or purchase which nothing will supply. I can do that by another 
which I cannot do alone. I can say to you what I cannot first say to myself. Other men are lenses through which we read our minds. Each man seeks those of different quality from his own, and such are as good of their kind. That is, he seeks other men and the otherest. The stronger the nature, the more it is reactive. Let us have the quality pure. A little genius let us leave alone. A main difference exists between men, whether they attend their own affair or not. Man is that noble endogenous plant which grows, like the palm from within, outward. His own affair though, impossible to others, he can open with celerity and in sport. It is easy to sugar to be sweet, and to nidar to be salt. We take a great deal of pains to waylay and entrap that which of itself will fall into our hands. I count him a great man who inhabits a higher sphere of thought, into which other men rise with labour and difficulty. He has but to open his eyes and see things in a true light, and in large relations, whilst they must make painful corrections, and keep a vigilant eye on many sources of error. His service to us is of like sort. It costs a beautiful person no exertion to paint her image on our eyes. Yet how splendid is that belief. It costs no more for a wise soul to convey his quality to other men. And everyone can do his best thing. He is great who is what he is from nature and who never reminds us of others. But he must be related to us, and our life receive from him some promise of explanation. I cannot tell what I would know, but I have observed there are persons who, in their character and actions, answer questions which I have not skill to put. One man answers some questions which none of his contemporaries put and is isolated. The past and passing religions and philosophies answer some other question. Certain men affect us as rich possibilities, but helpless to themselves and to their times. The sport, perhaps, of some instinct that rules in the air. They do not speak to our wants. But the great are near. 
we know them at sight. They satisfy expectation and fall into place. What is good is effective, generative, makes for itself room, food and allies. A sound apple produces seed, a hybrid does not. Is a man in his place, he is constructive, fertile, magnetic, inundating armies with his purpose, which is thus executed. The river makes its own shores and each legitimate idea makes its own channels and welcome. Harvest for food, institutions for expression, weapons to fight with, and disciples to explain it. The true artist has the planet for his pedestal, and the adventurer, after years of strife, has nothing broader than his own shoes. Our common discourse respects two kinds of use of service from superior men. Direct giving is agreeable to the early belief of men. Direct giving of material or metaphysical aid, as of health, eternal youth, fine senses, arts of healing, magical power, and prophecy. The boy believes there is a teacher who can sell him wisdom. Churches believe in imputed merit, but in strictness we are not much cognizant of direct serving. Man is endogenous and education is his unfolding. The aid we have from others is mechanical, compared with the discoveries of nature in us. What is thus learned is delightful in the doing, and the effect remains. Right ethics are central, and go from the soul outward. Gift is contrary to the law of the universe, Serving others is serving us. I must absolve me to myself. Mind thy affair, says the spirit. Coxcomb, would you meddle with the skies or with other people? Indirect service is left. Men have a pictorial or representative quality and serve us in the intellect. Beeman and Swedenborg saw that things were representative. Men are also representative, first of things and secondly of ideas. As plants convert the minerals into food for animals, so each man converts some raw material in nature to human use. The inventors of fire electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, linen, silk, 
Cotton, the makers of tools, the inventor of decimal notation, the geometer, the engineer, musician, severally make an easy way for all through unknown and impossible confusions. Each man is, by secret liking, connected with some district of nature, whose agent and interpreter he is, as Linnaeus of plants, Huber of bees, Fries of lichens, Van Mons of pears, Dalton of atomic forms, Euclid of lines, Newton of fluxions. A man is a centre for nature, running out threads of relation through everything, fluid and solid, material and elemental. The earth rolls, every clod and stone comes to the meridian, so every organ, function, acid, crystal, grain of dust, has its relation to the brain. It waits long, but its turn comes. Each plant has its parasite, and each created thing its lover and poet. Justice has already been done to steam, to iron, to wood, to coal, to lodestone, to iodine, to corn and cotton. But how few materials are yet used by our arts. The mass of creatures and of qualities are still hid and expectant. It would seem as if each waited, like the enchanted princess in fairy tales, for a destined human deliverer. Each must be disenchanted and walk forth to the day in human shape. In the history of discovery, the ripe and latent truth seems to have fashioned a brain for itself. A magnet must be man-made in some Gilbert or Swedenborg or Orsted before the general mind can come to entertain its powers. If we limit ourselves to the first advantages, a sober grace adheres to the mineral and botanic kingdoms, which in the highest moments comes up as a charm of nature. The glitter of the spa, the sureness of affinity, the veracity of angles. Light and darkness, heat and cold, hunger and food, sweet and sour, solid, liquid and gas circle us round in a wreath of pleasures, and by their agreeable quarrel beguile the day of life. The eye repeats every day the finest eulogy on things. He saw that they were good, 
we know where to find them, and these performers are relished all the more. After a little experience of the pretending races, we are entitled also to higher advantages. Something is wanting to science until it has to be humanised. The table of logarithms is one thing, and its vital play in botany, music, optics and architecture another. There are advancements to numbers, anatomy, architecture, astronomy, little suspected at first when by union with intellect and will they ascend into the life and reappear in conversation, character and politics. But this comes later. We speak now only of our acquaintance with them in their own sphere and the way in which they seem to fascinate and draw to them some genius who occupies himself with one thing all his long life. The possibility of interpretation lies in the identity of the observer with the observed. Each material thing has its celestial side, has its translation through humanity into the spiritual and necessary sphere where it plays a part as indestructible as any other. And to these their ends all things continually ascend. The gases gather to the solid firmament. The chemic lump arrives at the plant and grows, arrives at the quadruped and walks, arrives at the man and thinks. But also the constituency determines the vote of the representative. He is not only representative but participant. Like can only be known by like. The reason why he knows about them is that he is of them. He has just come out of nature or from being a part of that thing. Animated chlorine knows of chlorine and incarnate zinc of zinc. Their quality makes this career, and he can variously publish their virtues, because they compose him. Man made of the dust of the world does not forget his origin, and all that is yet inanimate will one day speak and reason. Unpublished nature will have its whole secret told, Shall we say that quartz mountains will pulverise into innumerable Werners, Von Buchs and Beaumonts, and the laboratory of the atmosphere holds in solution I know not what Berzelius and Davies. Thus we sit by the fire and take hold of the poles on earth, 
This quasi-omnipresence supplies the imbecility of our condition. In one of those celestial days, when heaven and earth meet and adorn each other, it seems a poverty that we can only spend at once. We wish for a thousand heads, a thousand bodies, that we might celebrate its immense beauty in many ways and places. Is this fancy? Well, in good faith, we are multiplied by our proxies. How easily we adopt their labours. Every ship that comes to America got its chart from Columbus. Every novel is debtor to Homer. Every carpenter who shaves with a foreplane borrows the genius of a forgotten inventor. Life is grit and all around with a zodiac of sciences. The contributions of men who have perished to add their point of light to our sky. Engineer, broker, jurist, physician, moralist, theologian, and every man inasmuch as he has any science, is a definer and a map-maker of the latitudes and longitudes of our condition. These road-makers on every hand enrich us. We must extend the area of life and multiply our relations. We are as much gainers by finding a new property in the old earth as by acquiring a new planet. We are too passive in the reception of these material or semi-material aids. We must not be sacks and stomachs. To ascend one step, we are better served through our sympathy. Activity is contagious. Looking where others look and conversing with the same things. We catch the charm which lured them. Napoleon said, You must not fight too often with one enemy, or you will teach him all of your art of war. Talk much with any man of vigorous mind, and we acquire very fast the habit of looking at things in the same light. And on each occurrence, we anticipate his thought. Men are helpful through the intellect and the affections. Other help, I find a false appearance. If you affect to give me bread and fire, I perceive that I pay for it the full price. And at last it leaves me as it found me, neither better nor worse. But all mental and moral force is a positive good. It goes out from you whether you will or not, and profits me whom you never thought of. I cannot even hear of personal vigour of any kind, 
great power of performance without fresh resolution. We are emulous of all that man can do. Cecil saying of Sir Walter Raleigh, I know that he can toil terribly, is an electric touch. So are Clarendon's portraits of Hampton, who was of industry and vigilance, not to be tired out or wearied by the most laborious, and of parts not to be imposed on by the most subtle and sharp, and of a personal courage equal to do his best parts, of Falkland, who was so severe an adorer of truth, that he could as easily have given himself leave to steal as to dissemble. We cannot read Plutarch without a tingling of the blood, and I accept the saying of the Chinese Mencius, as age is the instructor of a hundred ages, when the manners of Lu are heard of, the stupid become intelligent, and the wavering determined. This is the moral of biography, yet it is hard for departed men to touch the quick like our own companions, whose names may not last as long. What is he whom I never think of, whilst in every solitude are those who succor our genius and stimulate us in wonderful manners? There is a power in love to divine another's destiny better than other can and by heroic encouragements hold him to the task. What has friendship so signalled as its sublime attraction to whatever virtue is in us? We will never more think cheaply of ourselves or of life. We are piqued to some purpose, and the industry of the diggers on the railroad will not again shame us. Under this head too falls that homage, very pure, as I think which all ranks to pay the hero of the day, from Coriolanus and Gracchus, down to Pitt, Lafayette, Wellington, Webster, Lamartine, Hear the shouts in the street. The people cannot see him enough. They delight in a man. Here is a head and a trunk. What a front. What eyes. Atlantean shoulders and the whole carriage heroic. With equal inward force to guide the great machine. This pleasure of full expression to that which, in their private experience, is usually cramped and obstructed, runs also much higher, and is the secret of the reader's joy in literary genius. Nothing is kept back, 
there is fire enough to fuse the mountains of ore. Shakespeare's principal merit may be conveyed in saying that he of all men best understands the English language and can say what he will. Yet these unchoked channels and floodgates of expression are only health or fortunate constitution. Shakespeare's name suggests other and purely intellectual benefits. Senates and sovereigns have no complement with their medals, swords and armorial coats. Like the addressing to a human being thoughts out of a certain height and presupposing his intelligence. This honour which is possible in personal intercourse, scarcely twice in a lifetime, genius perpetually pays contented if now and then, in a century the proffer is accepted. The indicators of the values of matter are degraded to a sort of cooks and confectioners on the appearance of the indicators of ideas. Genius is the naturalist or geographer of the supersensible regions and draws on their map and by acquiring us with new fields of activity calls our affection for the old. These are at once accepted as the reality of which the world we have conversed with is the show. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed that interesting book, but I hope it wasn't interesting enough to keep you awake. If you are still awake, feel free to listen to another episode of the Bore You to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be looking at bringing you another episode very soon. Until then, good night.